think that if I uh, came up here and made the claim that the promises that this modern world gives us are broken promises, anyone would bat an eyelash. Our age is marked by cynicism, skepticism, suspicion of institutions, and the idea that nothing comes for free. This is the age of constant scam calls and scam emails. Just a fun aside, I get about, I don't know about you, but I get about four to eight texts a day now from what are obviously scams. And it's so normalized in my daily rhythm that I just, I don't even, it doesn't phase me anymore. Before I used to get upset, now I don't. I just, I just hit junk and move on. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> but the offers that these, these emails and these, these texts, you know, are offering are amazing. It's free money, better sex life, medication to cure what ails you. Um, that's because we know it's all tr- untrue that we just move on with our day and it doesn't phase us. We don't really pay attention to it. And to remedy some of this cynicism that we have in our culture, we've tried many options and visions and utopian agendas, and we've been left out in the cold. I would say that one of the key cultural flavors that uh, I, I think is left in our mouths these days is incredulity. In our own little kingdom of Silicon Valley, we actually have living human examples of these promises. People once looked to titans of the industry for guidance and were in turn essentially sold a pack of lies. Yet these lies were still swallowed in the hopes that it would fulfill us as a society. When you're a starving person, you may even eat dirt to fill your belly. But the true stories slowly came out about these supposed titans. The journalism was done and printed and it became clear that these heroic people may not have ever existed in the ways that we thought that they did. Time testing their offers of salvation, and their offers were found lacking. A former Apple executive once said, prophetically, I think, in 1997 of Steve Jobs, it's amazing how he gets people on board, and it's also amazing that he can live with himself. And when I read that quote, it brought to mind another, I would say, more relevant Silicon Valley moment. That is the story of the company Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes. Who who knows that story? Has anyone heard the podcast, The Dropout? No? Okay, a couple people. Well, you're going to hear a truncated version of it. So again, as we know, Elizabeth Holmes offered this amazing, amazing promise that, that seemed too good to be true. It was a new medical technology that would run dozens of groundbreaking medical tests just with the drop of one, your one drop of blood from your finger. And this was something that was impossible before her claim. The implications were astounding, and it would literally change the the field of medicine forever. With one drop of blood, you could know if you had a rare type of cancer. You would be able to quickly ascertain all sorts of information that would normally require long and lengthy blood draws. Eventually, a hype train grew for this company. Elizabeth Holmes was publicly praised in a very famous interview by Bill Clinton. Joe Biden praised her. Charlie Rose praised her. And because of this, the press that she received really catapulted her to fame. And there was this frenzy that surrounded her and the health, com- uh, health technology company that she had started, Theranos. She was uh, placed on the cover of Fortune magazine and then Forbes wearing, of all things, a black turtleneck. And it wasn't just her outfit that was similar, but much like Steve Jobs, she was also able to get tons of really amazing, talented people on board because of this hype. 
Because an amazing promise needs amazing talent to bring it to conclusion. People will people people were thrilled to work with her and with Theranos. People really believed in what they were doing and were excited to potentially help create a singularity in the field of medicine. People believed that salvation was on the way. But quickly, the lies ran out, and it became clear that the whole thing was actually a scam. The promise they had made was essentially impossible, or at least, at best, many, many, many years away from being technologically possible, in the slightest. But people knew that something was up, they could smell that something was off, and eventually the lawsuits piled up. The work environment at the company became increasingly toxic. Internally, people's voices were squashed, and questions were met with layoffs. Eventually, it all collapsed, and now Elizabeth is left to a legacy of shame and prison. The promise of the better life which Silicon Valley can offer us seems to have had its 15 minutes of fame, and the fallout has been brutal. It has left many of us tired, emotionally wrecked, and cynical about a slew of things. I've even heard some people refer to amazing offers or tech claims as a possible new Theranos. So we're in the middle of a short sermon series, which takes place in the Gospel of John, as we heard read today, where Jesus has various saving encounters with different people. And our Gospel scenario today presents uh, someone who's getting an amazing offer. So amazing that it might actually be pretty hard to believe. The difference here is that the Christian claim is that this offer is true. It's not a false promise. In chapter 4 of John, we see Jesus crossing cultural and racial boundaries to connect with a societal pariah, a Samaritan woman. And he presents her with this, this offer, a living water that does not run out and does not leave you thirsty, a living water that gives eternal life, life overflowing and welling up, in fact. And unlike possibly many of us cynical modern folks, the Samaritan woman doesn't balk at this. She jumps at the chance. She takes Jesus at his word. There is no worry about strings attached or false visions. There is simply a request to have the water. For someone so beat down by society and potentially having the most reason to be cynical about some random guy hanging out at a well asking for water, There is something about Jesus that causes her to move towards his offer and the words that he speaks. What he speaks into her life in only the ways that he can. What she gets, like some of the luckiest human beings on the planet, are a chance to meet and have an actual physical encounter with Christ during his earthly ministry. She physically sits with him, hears his voice, and processes his words. The key part of this woman's encounter is to encounter, which is unlike our modern sensibilities. The difference here is to experience and encounter someone or something in a way that goes beyond a quick passing glance at some words. The words are part of it, but it has to go beyond to something more concrete and tangible. And part of that tangibility is to actively choose into places where we encounter, where we draw close, and where there is imminence. And this is kind of interesting when you think about it, because in contrast, many of the promises that Silicon Valley gives us can't actually be approached in this way, yet we still give over our lives to those promises. You can't draw close to them in the way that you can draw close to Jesus. So with that in mind, I'd argue that we actually need to start somewhere inside ourselves. What's behind our real fear to truly grasping hold of the offer that Jesus gives us? 
Because we know he offers this water to the Samaritan woman and to us also. But why don't we draw near? Is it a loss of control? Is it that we would have to admit that all our time and energy invested into these other promises didn't pay off? I'm actually struck by this passage for how intimate it actually is and yet how amazing a promise it claims. It's taken me a bit of wrestling to really hone in on what I think uh, was so striking about the passage, but I do think it's this. When we really look at what Jesus offers here, it is an offer so incredible, so amazing, so earth-shattering that I think we don't truly fully believe it sometimes. It's easier to believe in the things that are closer at hand that we can manipulate and control to a limited extent. We don't draw near to it because we may not believe it can be drawn near to Jesus' offer. And that's not surprising when we remember that you can't draw near to the promises that Silicon Valley makes either. We do what we know. So how do we change what we know? Something that uh, some of you may not know about me is that I spent over a decade, almost probably 15 years, in the music industry pursuing pretty heavily and intentionally musical success. I toured, I recorded albums, I had conversations with record executives, I was lucky enough to meet some of my heroes. I did the whole gamut of the music thing. I sought success and value in the promises that this world made. If you just write the best song, if you just play the biggest show, if you're the wittiest person in the room, if you can reach more people with your music, you will be content, you will be happy, and you will be known and seen, and life will be good. But it was so elusive. It was a carrot dangled in front of me for years. It was a mirage in the distance. You journey towards it, and then when you think you've arrived at its location, it appears another set of miles ahead of you again, and you start all over. With the help of a lot of therapy and prayer and time, I've realized that what was going on was that I was being promised these incredibly amazing things. And those amazing offers, coincidentally, were speaking to the broken parts of me from my childhood, the parts of greatest need, the parts of greatest thirst, the parts of greatest wounding. I spent time trying to see and touch those things, those mirages. And so on paper and in my limited experience, they felt real and tangible because I was on an experiential journey. Things did shift and move, and things happened for sure, but not the things necessary to make that promise actually true. And I could tell you a very long story about that music industry journey, but suffice it to say, the big takeaway piece of wisdom I've gleaned is this. None of those things ultimately address the need for true life that was inside me, that's inside all of us. I could grasp at them, but they never changed my life. And you may not be in the music industry, but that's arbitrary because we all have our own proverbial music industry. Maybe it's the tech world. Maybe it's our relationships. Maybe it's other forms of success. Maybe it's our skills and abilities, things that we actually can touch and use. Maybe it's how people think of us. The list is literally infinite. Upon reflecting on the gospel reading for today, I sense that whatever was truly going on for the Samaritan woman in her life, her place of greatest wounding and need was in her relationships. Jesus begins to recount her life story, explaining she has had five husbands, and currently the man that she's with is not her husband, which is a scandalous reality for her cultural time and context. Her proverbial music industry was her relational history. Maybe she was going from one relationship to another, looking for that thing that would give her peace comfort or security. Maybe the mirage was a common one that we all have even in our culture, that a romantic relationship will fix you. Or maybe one possibility, just 
throwing it out there, is that her husbands died one after another, leaving her with the narrative that there is no security in relationships, so why even be married to the current man she lives with? Whatever her story, she strikes me as someone who's running after that mirage. So then it's no surprise, really, that when Jesus offers true life-giving water, she leaps at this offer. This time was different, this time was different though, and to quote an Indiana Jones movie about a similar cup of water, she chose wisely. But taking hold of this water of life is also letting go of other offered waters. And I think we know that deep down inside, but we don't get to really let go. And that gets us in trouble when we don't let go. I will never uh, forget one of my favorite Simpsons gags ever, which is Homer Simpson getting his hand stuck in a vending machine at work because he wants a soda, but he doesn't have the necessary money. So instead, he attempts to reach his arm into the machine and pull out a drink. Time to stick it to the man, he exclaims. Careful, Homer, his co-worker says. I heard someone lost an arm in there once. Psh, that's just an old wives' tale, returns Homer. And of course, as he's reaching into the machine, the viewer is privy to the information that there is, in fact, a skeletal arm inside the machine holding a can of Fresca. Homer gets his arm stuck. He panics. He tries to leave, but is held back by the vending machine. It has him trapped. Eventually, help arrives in the way of some fellow workplace engineers. And literally, right as they're about to use a power saw to cut his arms off, he asks, it'll grow back, right? The guy goes, yeah, yeah, sure. Ah, phew, okay. One of the rescuing engineers says, Homer, are you just holding on to the can? And the next scene is Homer leaving the front gates of his work, being laughed out of the building by his coworkers for his foolishness. Lastly, choosing Jesus' offer is also about choosing to drink at one well. And this subverts our sense of control and planning for the future and our sense of option that we love so much in this day and age. It also subverts our sense of what we think gives us true life. And this rings true for me personally. How many times have I done a Christian hokey pokey with one foot in and one foot out, hedging my bets on other things like money and success or human affirmation? How many times have I drank from a well that just left me needing to come back for more? Worse yet, how many times have I drank from water that actually leaves me more thirsty in the end than when I started? G.K. Chesterton uh, very famously said, and this is one of his more well-known quotes, the, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. If we really accepted this living water, forsaking all the other wells of this life, and we drank from just the water of life, what would actually happen to us? What if we actually tried this living water? So we will end our time with a practice that I think will help us draw near, not just read the promise on paper. And this practice is called the Lectio Divina, which is, which is a Latin word for divine reading. And it's an ancient practice, and it's a chance to engage with Scripture in a reflective and meditative way, to let Scripture speak to us personally in this time and place. Normally, we end uh, sermons with a time of music, but I thought that um, it would be nice to end with a gospel reading to orient our hearts and minds. So uh, I'm going to guide you through this if you've never done Electio Divina before. I uh, assure you it's not scary, uh, but it is uh, something that I think is uh, a different, kind of contrary to our pace of life, which is fast-paced. So I'm going to guide you through a small portion of Scripture. I will read the Scripture a couple times, and each time that I read it, this is a chance to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. 
So if you would, go ahead and close your eyes and just find yourself in your seat. Each time that I read this scripture, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to reveal something in the scripture or to reveal something in our hearts to bring this story of Jesus and the woman at the well off the page and into our hearts and our lives. We'll take a moment to sit in silence and then I'll read the scripture. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now read the scripture a second time. And again, this is a chance to notice something new. Maybe a word stands out to you or a specific phrase. Ask God to speak to you. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now read the scripture a third and final time. And Lord, I ask um, through your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through your living word, your scripture? Would this jump off the page? Would it become an encounter with you today through your living word? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray as we end this time of teaching. Lord Jesus, 
we long to drink from the, the living water that you offer, to be filled, to overflowing, to experience true life in you. Lord, whatever word you have for us today, would we hear it clearly? Would we hear it loudly? Would we be moved by your scripture, not just as words on a page, but as the living word that is alive and moving even today, even 2,000 years later? Lord, my prayer for us is that you would be nudging us to see the places where we are holding on and it's hard for us to let go. Would you show us those places where we have been drinking from a different well? And would we seek to drink from your well, Lord Jesus? We pray all this in your name. Thank you.